Section 32 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Heirloom by T. Duthy Lyle. Volume 3, Chapter 5. De Profundis. For the willful murder, or let us call it butchery, in all its heartless, cold-blooded dexterity, of the master of Vernwood, the body of his assassin Michael Sullivan, alias Gervois, had not lain so much as one twelve hours in the dust of an unhallowed grave, ere Colonel Vandermeulen knew, as far as by human knowledge could be known, each act, almost each word and thought, of the last hours of the culprit's life. His protestations of innocence, or his confessions of guilt, of the brighter moments when rays of hopefulness at times broke through the rifts of the awful cloud, or some faint light glimmered beyond the gloom of the dark valley of shadow through which he was condemned to pass, of those dark hours wherein the great unfathomable future of eternity was an utter immeasurable void, without even the scintillation from its depths of a single guiding star, the present void, the future hopeless, the past remorse. All this, with the usual perspicuity, the usual insight into the depths of human lives and events which made him such a consummate master of his profession, the New York detective Heinrich Vandermeulen had quickly got to know. In our last chapter we said enough to show that Sullivan or Gervois had lived, had died, had confessed, had received absolution, had passed from this life to a life beyond, to purgatory or to paradise, amid the consolations and ministrations of the Roman Catholic faith. Born as he was, a Frenchman by his father and Irish on his maternal side, brought zealously up in the tenets of the Romish faith, he had no idea of any other than what in his eyes was the true and only real belief to trust in for the salvation of his soul, and the church, ever watchful and anxious for the spiritual well-being of her children, whether innocent or erring, lagged not to impart its spiritual consolations to the fallen and the condemned. Hence, day nor night had the two priests whose painful office it was to minister to the unhappy culprit's spiritual necessities been absent from the condemned man's cell. Whatever Colonel Vandermeulen knew, whatever means he had employed to learn, it is scarcely our privilege, it may not be within our ability, to look too closely behind the veil. The press, the busy mouthpiece of the world, gave to its public many conflicting and contradictory accounts. It was said that the murderer of Bertram Gonneau had confessed all, that he had made a clean breast of his deed, it was said that he had on the morning of his execution, at the last moment, placed a sealed document, to be opened only after he had ceased to live, in his confessor's hands. Such was vaguely said. But if that was truly and really so, like as the murderer's remains were buried in the oblivion of an unhallowed grave, to be forgotten or to be remembered only in dishonor, or chronicled in the annals of crime, so likewise any written confession that he ever penned, except to be examined in official secrecy and pigeonholed, to pass forever from human eyes and human remembrance, never saw the light. The man was dead. 
so argued straight-backed officialism and blind-eyed red tape, and whether he were innocent or guilty, the die had been cast, and no human power could bring him back to life. Therefore it mattered not to the outer world what were his final acts or protestations during his life. As a matter of fact, rumor was not completely wrong, and previous to his decease, the murderer Michael Gervois had actually placed in the hands of his confessors and spiritual advisers a document written and sealed to be opened only after his demise. And almost every word in this document, although it was never published, by some mysterious means, through some mysterious channel, that genius in his calling, Heinrich Vandermeulen, very quickly, as we have said, ere the writer had been twelve hours dead, knew. How exactly that came to be, we will not venture too particularly to surmise or to impart, but this much we may tell, from being in his religion, as necessity demanded of any faith which man ever hoped or believed in for the salvation of his soul, or from being, as circumstances required, of no faith at all, with that mutability which enabled him to adapt himself to all circumstances, to be all things to all men, to suit himself as naturally and easily to surrounding requirements as every hovering, changing shadow causes the chameleon to vary the hue of his skin, Colonel van der Meulen became a convert to the Church of Rome, as zealous and devout a proselyte as ever dipped in holy water or knelt before an altar at high mass. But without concerning ourselves with this, without intruding too curiously within the sacred veil of the confessional which hung around the dark precincts of the murderer's cell, ignoring avowals which under its solemn ban might have been uttered in sacerdotal ears, and which no anointed priest of the Romish church under pain of penalties or ostracism may divulge, we may tell only what we know. And the document which the murderer Michael Sullivan penned before his death, and which he placed in the hands of the young priest, Father Loyola, who administered the last rites and sacraments and consolations which his church could bestow, was this. Confession of Michael Gervois I, Michael Gervois, make this in writing my last confession before my death, and for my sins may the Lord through the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, have mercy on my soul. As before many days or many hours I must die, and even now it seems as if the grave yawns open to receive my body before my very eyes, I now desire to unburden my conscience, as far as confession can, by an avowal of my guilt and sin, and the great crime which weighs so heavily upon my soul. In the sight of God, trusting in the intercession of the Blessed Virgin, I hereby confess that I murdered my master Bertram Grenot, and for the crime it is just that I should die. But while I acknowledge the justness of the sentence which has been passed upon me by the law, I protest and confess that the crime for which I am about to suffer had not been planned or carried out of my own free will, of any malice prepense, and in this I protest that I am innocent of the sin. I confess my weakness, and in my weakness I have been but a tool in other hands in committing so fearful a deed, but for this weakness I own it is but just that I should die. 
and now, as I stand on the very brink of the grave, on the threshold of an eternity which seems to open so vast and dark and hopeless in my spiritual sight, I swear that I owed my master no ill will, and being now beyond the fear or vengeance of man, and having only to reckon with my God, who must deal as seemeth him good with my immortal soul, I write the following account and history of my crime. Some two or three years ago, when working at my trade in the city of Mexico, I was inveigled into blindly taking the oath of allegiance, fidelity, and obedience to the tenets of a secret fraternity calling themselves the sons of Cain. I took the oath, I say, blindly. And so it was. I was not long within the pale of the society of the sons of Cain, ere I discovered that while their professed reason d'etre was good fellowship, social enjoyment, and apparently harmless pleasures, yet beneath this surface, and within its inner circle, the hands of the sons of Cain, like those of the scriptural prototype after whom they called themselves, were deeply dyed with crime and blood, human blood, and instead of the innocent pursuits which they professed, the real and veritable business of the affiliation was murder, robbery, assassination, crime. When I saw the dangerous society into which I had fallen, I would have withdrawn, I would have cut off my hand if it could have disunited me with such men. But it was as the snare into which the bird flies unwittingly, or as the barbed arrow which has entered the flesh, easy to enter but practically impossible to withdraw. Within the inner circle of this fraternity, I heard murder and crime discussed with all the sang-froid and deliberation with which men of business or men of the world discuss the prospects of trade or agriculture, or the fluctuations of the exchange. Not only so, but I found that this Mexican murder society was the parent stem from which ramified certain offshoots existing in New York, London, and several other of the more important American and European cities. But their aim and object everywhere was the same, murder, robbery, violence, crime. Within the inner circle of the order, the movements of the great and wealthy, both of the new world and the old, were known by a system of espionage as dark and secret and mysterious as it was complete. I will not now disclose the many crimes which I could unfold and heard discussed. I had not been so much as six months a member of the criminal fraternity when I was chosen by ballot for the perpetration of a crime, a murder. As the details of what was expected of me were imparted to me, I shrunk with horror from the deed but there was no holding back, no turning aside. As is common with such fraternities, my own life would have been the exacted penalty of my refusal, of any faltering in my obedience or suspicion of infidelity to the voted decrees of the sons of Cain. But while its decisions were systematically arrived at by ballot and immutable, yet it was left to the arrangement of individual members of the fraternity, or what may be called subcommittees, to carry out its designs. I was instructed in the role which I was expected to perform by two of the secret brotherhood, whose names, as strange to relate, we knew each other within the council only by astronomical terms, I never knew. But that which struck me as most remarkable was the exact and marvelous similarity, the one to the other, 
of the two men who were my instructors in the deed which I was expected to perform. In stature, in complexion, in age, in features, in voice, in manner, even in dress, the one was a repetition, a facsimile of the other, so startling and striking was the similarity of form and face. There could be no doubt but that they were children of the same parents born on the same day. But the order which I received, and which being the unanimous vote of the assembled fraternity, was irrevocable and imperative, filled me with dismay. My orders were these. Accompanied by the two men who had been my instructors, I was to proceed from the city of Mexico to New York, and thence, if necessary, to cross the ocean to Europe, and accomplish the death of a young man who would be pointed out to me. Under what pretext, what sin he had committed in the eyes of the sons of Cain, to merit death, I could not comprehend. But now I know that his sin in their eyes was the possession of greater wealth than the plotters against his life possessed. A few days after receiving the orders of the fraternity, in company with the two men who had been my instructors, I left Mexico. We arrived in the city of New York, where a secret conference between the members of the fraternity, but to which I was not admitted, brought about some alteration in our plans, and one of my two companions informed me that he should cross with me to Europe, while his brother, as I can but call him, would remain in New York. In due time we reached London, and soon, in that great meeting and conference ground of all sects and societies, both bad and good, I found myself in company with a fraternity of villains, Americans, English, Irish, Germans, and Russians, no less murderous, seditious, and lawless than the clique of the same order with whom I had become so fatally entangled in the cities of Mexico and New York. Oh, the unhappy day! With these men I spent my days carousing, for, however obtained, there was never any lack of funds among the sons of Cain, and I found myself fast sinking to the level of those with whom I spent my nights and days. At last, one day, in one of two gentlemen issuing from a club in St. James's Street, in front of which we had been loitering and watching, was pointed out to me the young man whose destruction I was voted to accomplish in Mexico. He was handsome, tall, fashionably dressed, with dark Spanish-looking complexion and features, and I was informed he was the owner of enormous wealth. It would take too long, my last hours are ebbing too rapidly away, to tell in detail the machinations by which, making use of my trade as a disguise, I got employment on my late master's estate, got access to the mansion, knew every room, chamber, passage of the house. The complete knowledge which I was gaining took many months to acquire, but I knew that I was playing and scheming for enormous stakes. What led me to these conclusions more readily? What again to me looked another remarkable coincidence, as I got to know my master, the owner of Vernwood, intimately, was again his great personal resemblance to the two men who, as I have already said, had been my instructors in plotting his death. It even occurred to me if they could be brothers, but even to this hour I cannot tell. At last the night in which I resolved to carry out my bloody action came. 
It was a fresh, pure, unclouded summer night, a night too pure and beauteous to be sullied and overshadowed with so black a crime. Midnight had passed when I stole from my cottage, hiding, secreting myself in the shadows of the trees from the almost unclouded rays and brilliancy of the harvest moon, till I reached a spot on the lawn within a few yards of where I knew my master lay. I could hear his ravings, his delirious laughter, I knew he was helpless and weak. I saw the dark servant issue from his sick master's chamber, I feared I must have been discovered, so near to me in the moonlight the black man stood. The rest is known. As my thoughts approach it, I shut my eyes in horror, if possible to shut out the scene. But it cannot, cannot be, it must haunt me to the end. I lived on as before, to the outer world unchanged, but over my inmost soul there hung the dark shadow, which made me wish myself ten thousand leagues away. The awful terror of the consciousness of my guilt and crime! Oh, who can portray the murderer's night thoughts, the remembrance of the victim's terror-stricken face, the ghastly visions of gore-stained hands, and now, above all, the gaping eternity of an angered, insatiable hell. As alone, night by night, I lay in my cottage, thickly surrounded and canopied, as it were, with woodland leaves and trees, who can picture my mental agony and remorse? In every sighing wind which shook the trees, I heard my dying victims moan, to my terrified senses the midnight cry of the screech-owl was distorted into some demoniacal hellish wail. Suspicion raged around me, but I, I, the true murderer of my master, escaped untouched, unscathed by its damning breath. Then with renewed agony I saw the colored man Massey arrested and tried, suffering for the crime which I had committed. His suffering punished me all the more, as I knew how faithful he was to his trust, as I knew that, far from murdering his master, he would have died to save his master's life. The beauteous world of Vernwood around me became in my sight as a very hell, but I must remain, for I knew that a hasty departure would at once direct attention and suspicion on to my own head. But when, in cooler moments, I came to ponder over my deed. What, I asked myself, what but woe and agony of spirit? What shred of advantage had I won by the committal of my crime? And the tempting devil whispering in my ear answered, not one shred. Man, what hast thou gained? Not one shred. Then, in that perversity wherein the tempter returns ever to the assault of the weak and fallen soul, like a harpy which attacks the weakling lamb, and Satan ever forsakes his own, I again was tempted. It was I who, acting as house-carpenter at Vernwood, was called in to screw down my master's coffin lid ere it was committed to the grave, and as I did so, I saw that as his hand rested across his bosom, upon his long white finger there was enclosed, and to be buried with the dead, the costly jewel which he wore on the ring-finger of his left hand, and of this, with that fatal perversity, my misleading demon tempted me to covet the possession. Emboldened and hardened by my first sin, by the accomplishment of his death, 
I need scarcely tell how at night I proceeded to my late master's grave in the mausoleum, how I dug down to the coffined dead, and then turned back the screws by which I knew I had so recently coffined the body in its intended long last bed, I looked again on my master's face, from his finger I stole the costly ring. With the great bodily strength which I possess, urged by my demon to so damnable an act, I dragged first the body and then the coffin from the grave. Again and again I committed insane and fatal blunders, as every murderer does, for Satan ever forsakes his own. Possessed thus of the coveted valuable, I took the earliest opportunity which I could do, without exciting suspicion, of quitting both Vernwood and England, and only congratulated myself with my being beyond danger when I landed again in New York. I re-entered there the New York Lodge of the Brotherhood of the Sons of Cain, and was congratulated on what I had done. I congratulated myself, too, but my self-satisfaction and congratulation came too soon, for ere I had been long in the American city, I walked into the trap which had been so adroitly set. And this I sign as being the true confession of Michael Sullivan, alias Michael Gervois. Such, somewhat curtailed, but reproduced substantially in our language rather than in the imperfect phraseology of the writer, was the purport of the penned confession of his guilt, which came, by some means, into the American detective Vandermeulen's hands, and it threw for his benefit, as it throws for ours, considerable light on the once mysterious Vernwood case. But Colonel Vandermeulen felt that his work was not done, he felt that his elucidation of the enigma was not yet complete, that much in the eyes of the world was still unexplained, he felt that although justice had been dealt to the guilty, yet to maintain his place on the high pinnacle of reputation upon which it stood, yet more remained. He felt, too, more than ever, that the opinion which he had entertained, that the confidence which he had reposed in his helper, Paul Newgas, the little ferret man as we have called him, personally insignificant as he looked and seemed, had not been misplaced, for however insignificant and despised any one of us may seem to be, let him not despair, let him be assured that there is a mission and a place for him in life. End of section 32